Waiting rooms can be miserable. I've spent my share, many of you have spent your share in a waiting room. Maybe it's not for your procedure, maybe it's for a loved one, uh, whether it's just going to see a doctor or going to a hospital or going for tests. It can be an interesting experience. Uh, a lot goes on in a waiting room. The attitude of the staff who are, are you know, seeing you when you come in, how you're welcomed, what the room is like, all sorts of mitigating factors. Over the years, I've learned a great deal about this, and I try to see the people behind the counter as you were, as people who are stressed out, tired, got family problems, deal with sick people only and always, having great compassion for what they're doing, and also knowing they have the ability to help, and how you treat them as a patient, and also the people in the room, the patients in the room, are a whole other story. Some are ornery, some are so sick they just can't function well. It's not, you know, it's not that they're bad people, they're, they're really ill. And then there's a person with the hangnail that's all dramatic. And all points in between it is a wonderful metaphor for what sort of people are we when we're in the waiting room? What do you like when you have to wait? And what do you like when the people who are supposed to help you maybe are, have their own challenges sometimes? Um, I, I give people a, a primer. I call it the Michael Easley Healthcare Program. Uh, it's called Two Dozen Krispy Kreme when you go to the doctor. Be nice to these people because they're people too. And it will go a long way to know their names and ask them how they're doing and talk to them and remember their names. And just be civil. Your health care will improve because you care about them. You want to be the patient that wants to get well, not the patient that just wants to come and complain. You want to be the patient that's kind, not mad. And granted, when you feel bad, that sometimes is hard. Or if you're new to the whole going to the doctor, that's hard because it's, it's a complicated system with health care. become the way it has, has sort of, you know, it's got troubles. Um, it's a perfect metaphor for how we live, what sort of person do you want to be when you have to wait? Now, in this section in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're actually looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. This pertains to the second coming of Christ. Context is critical. Peter's writing in this section of his letter because there was noise, let's call it, distraction, the section Christi uh, overviewed with the children. They were mockers complaining about the second coming of Christ, where it's not really going to happen. What's the second coming? Nonsense, put it in that vernacular. But the application is very easy, no matter what our situation in life. Let me read the whole section, verses 8 through 13. You can follow on the screen. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, 
what sort of people ought you be ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat but according to his promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells so I want to give you four kind of high view points of this passage as we go through it. Number one, our perspective of time needs to be reframed. Our perspective of time needs reframing. Again, the recipients of this letter, we conclude, thought that the Lord would return in their lifetime, that it was going to happen soon, and it wasn't happening. So these naysayers, which can lead us down a road of history that may or may not be important. These naysayers, well, I thought he was coming back. I thought you were talking about his soon return, and he is, it didn't come back. So where are these things happening? Again, don't miss Peter, who's not used this term until recently in his letters, beloved. Appalling term used a lot, but Peter doesn't use it much. And here comes out the apostle the shepherd the pastor the older elder statesman beloved he doesn't want them to be worried or concerned about this Um, time is a construct in fact it's often called a social construct there are you may or may not be aware of this but there's literally hundreds of thousands of books written about time what is time Uh, think of it very simply in this way if you live in the south there's a southern time it's socially acceptable to be a certain amount of time late to events. Cindy and I have this discussion often when we're going somewhere. If you live in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, uh, time is early. You better be there on time. You better know what you're doing. If you're in California, everyone's constrained by traffic and the, the complexity of getting around if you're in Chicago you have to plan for two hours sometimes to get somewhere because time is of the essence and the essence is sitting on the Eisenhower bumper to bumper or it's trading different public transportation systems that at least you don't have to pay attention you're just along for the ride the construct is just a simple way of illustrating the first century mind wasn't any different they had views of time that's the only point I'm making Peter's line with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day is a double statement. And more than likely, Peter's recalling Psalm 90 verse 4, for a thousand years are in your sight like yesterday when it passes by. Joseph Mayer says, to the eternal, to God, who is omnipotent in time and in space, all times are equally near. Listen again, to the eternal, who is omnipotent in time as in space, all times are equally near. I use a poor illustration. You know that an illustration at best stands on three legs, right? Not four. So think of man's view of linear time, and let's just call creation to the end of time, is a one-inch linear piece of string. Somewhere along that little line you were born, Somewhere along that little string, you came to Christ. Somewhere along that linear line, you had children or grandchildren or you buried a loved one. It's a one-inch little string. God's time and space is an immeasurable sphere in which that little one-inch piece of string is constrained. 
It's not a perfect illustration. It's just to give you an image. He's outside of space and time, and he controls both space and time. Just a way of thinking about it. We view time as a linear system of events, a time to live, a time to die, a time for war, a time for peace, right? We, we look at these linear events that cannot be repeated. What the psalmist is saying is a thousand years to you is nothing. Peter says the same thing. The way we view time as humans and our construct is, man, I wish he'd finish so I could go get donuts or go to lunch or get my kids fed, whatever it is. It's a linear event that's sort of, you know, a predator or something that pushes us along. Scientists, mathematicians, and engineers all have very different views of time. It's really quite fascinating to study. There's some really good books on time if you want to read it. This invention, of course, most of you have Apple watches. I'll pray for you. Um, but the, the, the old watch that just, you know, told the time and date, if you were really the cat's meow, this changed everything. This changed everything. And in some ways was, was the early concept of computing. Because we can now measure something and we can all be on the same page on what time it is. You go to Nigeria, for example, and you're going to have, you're going to speak at a conference. Well, it's just whenever they get there. And the, the, op, the other part of that, what's kind of nice is they're not in a hurry to go anywhere. So it's not like, oh, I got to go eat lunch. They came for that event. Time is a construct and it's viewed differently in different cultures. God's view of time is what matters not yours and mine. Whether we're early, late, punctual, impatient, patient, on time, ahead of time, our viewpoint. Understanding of time is relative and it's laden with temporal baggage. You and I have got a lot of temporal baggage on time. How long are we going to live? When's the baby going to be born? What time do I go to work? What time do I get on the plane? What time do we need to be at the airport because TSA might have some short staffing right now and I might have to wait in line longer? And we all love that anyway, right? What time, time, time? Think of the amount of time we worry about time. Peter is saying God doesn't look at it that way, which is pretty refreshing. Take a deep breath. I'm not bound by time when it comes to God's plan. So first of all, we need to reframe our view of time, especially from a biblical theological viewpoint. Secondly, the Lord is patient. And Peter adds some interesting seasoning. He's patient towards sinners. The first century believer was encouraged to think beyond their own predicament. Don't just think about, okay, Christ didn't come the way or when I thought he was going to come. Let's put it, don't just think about time in view of your treatment, in view of your schedule, in view of your job, in view of your filling in the blank, in view of your getting your taxes done on time. Don't just think about that construct. Think about time and God's perspective beyond your own predicament. What's he doing in time? Now, for you BSF Precept Community Bible folks, this is an interesting passage because there's a negative and positive infinitive. You don't find this very often. Paul will use negatives and positives to do chiastic comparisons. But Peter does something differently here in one sentence. The negative, not wishing for any to perish. The positive, for all to come to repentance. It's unique in the New Testament. Not wishing for any to perish. God's not malevolent. He's not capricious. He's not rubbing his hands, waiting for people to die and have a Christless eternity. I was in a group of men within the past two weeks Men my age, a couple of them are actually older than me. Wow. And uh, one of them asked a very serious question. 
And the question was, when we die, is there another opportunity? It's called open theism, in other words, sort of second chance redemption nonsense. But we had a very nice conversation about that. And what does that mean? Well, God, I mean, he wouldn't send somebody to hell to suffer and torment. That's a capricious view of God. That's saying God's malevolent and cruel and wants to throw people into darkness. And so God would be kind and loving if he would annihilate them. There's one major problem with that. We're made in the image of God. All the things that these brilliant children observed that God created, man is imago Deo. Man is his image bearer. That image bearer is eternal. God's not sending them or relegating them to hell. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. It's those who respond by faith, those who respond and trust in Christ and Christ alone that are safe from that. He doesn't want them to perish. If you want to look at this further, jot down Ezekiel 33.11 and 18.23. 33.11 and 18.23. God does not want, he's not a malevolent God who wants to send people to hell. The positive, he wants all to come to repentance. God's desire, now repentance is another loaded word. I'm not going to get into the weeds on it. But essentially, what Peter's saying is you've got to have a, a change of perspective. You've got to have a change of mind toward God. And there's great debate in the Christian evangelical fundamental community about do you repent to come to Christ? Do you come to Christ and repent? And yada, 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 yada. Just, just truncate that whole discussion and say the, the field of meaning, there's got to be a basic change toward God. God wants you to look at him. Now, I believe that God pulls us. I believe he gives us the faith to have faith. I believe he instills in us some interest. It wasn't like, I studied world religions and I decided that this is the right way. That's hubris, that's pride. God calls and pulls and draws us. And I, I can't tell you any more than that, but I believe he gives you the faith to have faith. And at some point you go, I need to change my mind about God. I need to change my view. Chicken and the egg, we can have that discussion another time. This does not mean that God is waiting on man, that he's sort of pacing heaven's floor going, how much longer am I going to wait for these people to come to Christ? How much longer am I? And that's an implication you can get from the passage. He's not wishing for any to perish, wanting them to come to repentance. He's patient toward them. So God's sort of whistling Dixie, if you will, <laughs> waiting for all these people to come around. No, it's back to reframing. Peter's trying to help them reframe. You thought Christ was going to come at a certain time, soon, imminent, and he didn't. And now you're being uh, mocked and ridiculed because of what you believe. So you need to understand, God's not capricious. He doesn't want any to perish. And God's not constrained by your view of time. That's his overall message. Let's reframe it from God's lens, not God being patient in the sense of, okay, I'll wait a little longer. I'll wait a few more millennium and see who comes, right? Because people are dying. So that doesn't make any sense. Think of it this way. The longer we await his return, the more opportunity we have to share the gospel. The longer we await his return, the longer we have to share the gospel. So the reframing goes back to your view and mine of time and God's view of time. Forget my view of time. You know, the longer 
he doesn't come back, the more opportunity you and I have to share Christ with people that desperately need to know him. Perhaps a more chilling aspect is that waiting is good, but when Christ returns, it's a very short runway. Depending on your eschatological view of things, it's a very short time frame when anyone will have opportunity to come to Christ by faith. Now, something that got me lost in the weeds this week in study was John 21, 18 and following. And we don't have time to unpack that passage, but some of you know this story and and will remember it very quickly. Uh, Toward the end of Christ's ministry, Peter is a little bit concerned about the time of things. And Jesus says something very cryptic to him. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And understand that gird, uh, if you've cared for an elderly parent, that's girding. Just use that as a way of relating to this. Uh, They'll gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. I don't know any old person that wants to be taken care of by other people. That's why you always want to, you know, be the first to go. You're, you know, Cindy's going to have to die after me because Cindy's the only one I want to take care of me. We've got this deal. I die first. She doesn't like that deal. So then it falls to your kids or it falls to some person you hire and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. How many of us have seen the elderly being take, taken where they don't want to go? This is a universal thing. This is nothing new. So Jesus tells Peter, when you get old, someone else is going to gird you and they're going to take you by the hand where you do not wish to go. And Peter's a little bit unhappy with this and he kind of jousts back at Jesus, which is always a mistake. He kind of jousts back and says, well, what about him? Referring to John, I won't take you down that passage, but basically he says, what is that to you? You follow me. The same guy writing this letter. Don't forget that. Peter's not stupid. He's a very brilliant apostle elder statesman that God chose in many ways the leading voice of the church and he's telling this audience in his later years don't worry about time God's patient look at it from that perspective the longer we wait the more people can come to Christ that would be the summary summary way we'd look at it well number one our perspective of time needs to change number two the Lord's patient And that's not that, again, he's pacing heaven's floor. You and I need to see him. He's patient toward us. That gives us more time, the way we view it, to share Christ. And third, Christ's return is imminent. His judgment is sure. But the day of the thief. And again, if you want to jot down a couple of passages, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 5, 2, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. 5, 2, and 2, 2. Um, what this day of the Lord is about, number one, think of it, it's the day that belongs to God. Don't think of it as a point in time on the calendar like a birthday. Think of it this time, this day. We've already been explained a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So that makes us, okay, forget the way we look at time. Make sense? Now, the day of the Lord, is he talking about a day on the calendar? I would suggest no in the context. He's just established a fact the way God views time is different than the way man views time. So now he uses this uh, statement that the Old Testament prophets often talked about the day of the Lord. Three times in our passage in verse 12, 13, and 14 of 2 Peter 3, Peter instructs us to pay attention to this imminent coming. 
And it's in your English Bible, looking for the hastening, looking for the new heavens and a new earth, and looking for these things. Pay attention, pay attention. Any of you grew up where the doctrine of eminence was taught a lot in your church or Sunday school? The imminent return of Jesus. I grew up where that was, that was a big thing, the imminent return. Live today is your last day because he might come today. And wouldn't it be horrible if he came today and you were just binging on Netflix? How are you going to live today if he comes today? And there's sort of this guilt and shame about living with eminence and so forth. The imminent return, and I have this really bad theological joke. Some of you heard it before. Nobody ever laughs. I don't expect you to. We all believe, I believe, in the imminent return of Jesus, just not in my lifetime. I think he's going to come any day, but not in my lifetime. Because my view of time is not framed theologically. My view of time is framed the way I want things to work out. So what Peter is saying here is Christ's return is imminent and the judgment is certain no matter our view and we're to look forward to that. Now, there's all sorts of eschatological uh, rabbit trails, actually more like highways we could take out of this passage that I'm not going to do. What I'm going to do is summarize just one statement from Dr. John Walvoord. Uh, John Walvoord believes in a premillennial, pre-tribulational view. You may not agree with that, that's okay. But this is what he writes. The day of the Lord includes the tribulation time preceding the second advent, the second coming of Christ, as well as the whole millennial reign, thousand-year reign of Christ. It will culminate in the judgment of the great white throne. The day of the Lord, therefore, is an extended period lasting over 1,000 years. Now, that's one view of eschatology. I, I agree with that view. He's not talking about a day on the calendar. He's just said a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. It would sort of make sense if he says the day, it could be now, it could be morning, it could be noon, it could be evening, it could be soon. You know that song? I always want to roller skate when I hear that song. Some of you aren't old enough to know what the heck I just talked about. <clears throat> the imagery of the thief also adds to this. And this is, this is interesting because I missed this until this week. The imagery of the thief is the assurance that it's going to happen. I typically thought of the imagery of the thief being it's going to, it's going to, he's going to sneak in, it's going to happen in the, under the cloak of night, he's going to break in and rob us. But listen to, it makes perfect sense. The Lord will come like a thief. He's going to come. You can't stop him. You don't know when he's going to break in. Listen to a passage that I would appeal to. Some might debate this. That's okay. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be, this is Jesus speaking. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into implication you don't know when the thief's coming it's not that hard for this reason you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think it's an imminent return you just can't put it on the calendar you don't know when it's going to happen so that's where the living faithfully comes in it's emphatic it's going to happen revelation 3 3 says as much the Old Testament prophets appealed to the day of the Lord, and they didn't look at a date on the calendar either. They looked at a time frame when the day of the Lord was coming. The, the day of judgment is coming. And so, again, not overstating the case. Now, 
the heavens and the earth are no longer going to be as we know them. Again, the imagery and the language here is, all, there's a lot of conjecture on what these terms mean. Justin Martyr thought it referred to the heavenly bodies, the stars, the sun, the moon, and that they were going to melt. Um, others believed it was the Greek worldview of, of um, earth, air, water, and fire, the so-called four basic elements that the Greek looked at all of the way the world was. The problem with that view is that how do you destroy fire with fire? I guess the bigger fire. Um, but that, that was the Greek worldview. And there's all these silo theological holes that scholars have dug on what these things mean. Let's come up and, for air and just say, not to put too fine a point on it, but what we see is going to be destroyed. Intense heat here is an, another thing I did not know till this week. It really means melting. So if you saw one of the first Indiana Jones movies where they had the really bad wax figures that melted when they opened the Ark of the Covenant, that's probably a pretty good idea. It's going to melt. The heat also is interestingly used in extra biblical language in the medical world of the Greek New Testament time of a fever, i.e. internal not external heat, but a person has something going on internally and therefore they're hot with fever. So if we put all those words together, again, we don't want to try to build a, a real tight paradigm here, but this idea of heat seems to be an internal heat that melts and destroys everything. The most common safe language is how the destruction occurs is by heat, whether it's internal, whether it's lava, all these sort of you know, apocalyptic movies. I find it fascinating that Hollywood is obsessed with apocalyptic movies. And the culture is obsessed with The Walking Dead and, the, and all, the, all these movies that are obsessed with this post-apocalyptic worldview. I think it goes back to that vacuum-shaped God thing and people are trying to figure out what's going to happen next. What would happen if another 9-11 occurs, what happens if a nuclear bomb, dirty bomb goes off? What happens if the power grids are all destroyed? What happens if they put some sort of uh, bacterial you know, uh, warfare thing in our water systems and half the country dies tomorrow? And we're all sort of sucked in this apocalyptic thinking and great fodder for you know, movies and fiction. Um, I absolve you of worry and fear. I absolve, if I had water, I'd sprinkle it on you. you know, God's sovereign. God's sovereign. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. It's going to happen. Now, Peter doesn't speculate. He moves our focus to a much more pressing image. Peter, with striking expression, reminds the readers that God will lay bare in that day the worthlessness of all human achievements apart from him. That's the real destruction. Forget the means or the manner, whether it's fire or whatever, that he is going to lay bare the worthlessness of all human achievements apart from him. Then he moves to the question that I would suggest is not a question, how do we then live? The exhortation to holy living. This is the assurance, the reminder of God's judgment. Peter injects verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What sort of people ought you to be? It's not as much a question as it is an exclamation point. In fact, if you're a note taker with pencil, I'd put an exclamation point there, not a question. What sort of people ought you to be? The inflection is not English grammar question mark. The inflection is, this is a call to action. How shall we then live? Hebert writes, the life of the committed believer should have a moral quality 
which includes wonder in the sensual worldling humans. It's unique in the New Testament. This holy conduct and godliness are plural nouns only found here by the Apostle Peter. Holy conduct means to live apart, a distinct way of life. I've shared with this you many times. My personal, um, I won't call it a struggle because struggle means delayed obedience. My personal quandary with my life, I'm not evaluating yours, I look so much like the world, how am I distinct? Legalism is insidious. Licentiousness is insidious. Both are sin. We live in liberty and freedom and all to the glory of God. But when you and I look so much like the culture, how are we in holy conduct? I don't know the answer to this. I, I, I like the word struggle. I, this is my conundrum. I hope it's yours too, frankly. I want to just give you that conundrum. I want to problem you with this. How do you stand out? How do I stand out? Holy conduct and godliness. That's how we stand out. Legalism and licentiousness are the wrong bookends. Godliness occurs four times in a letter and simply defines, I please God, not self. For you and me to be godly is to please God, not self. That doesn't mean we're abject poverty. We have freedom. We, have, we can enjoy things to the glory of God we can enjoy the wealth he's given us we can give it away we can go out and eat a beautiful meal here and shortly do whatever you want to do but it's devotion to God it's pleasing God and the question becomes will I serve my savior or will I serve myself that's the rub for all of us every morning a few weeks back uh, one of my friends happens to be a doctor and we text he's up early like I am and I texted him and I just said praying for you this morning honor God and he wrote me a long text back and he goes I thought about that all day long how do I honor God now I don't know how God uses anything but that on that particular day and time you know how do I honor God with all that I got in front of me patience and insurance and computers and people breathing down my neck and goals and how do you help a patient when you got to get numbers and all the things it's you know it's a different world for some of you men and women in that field Lily sums up the motivation, the habitual expectation of the coming of the day of the Lord is urged by Peter as being at once a characteristic mark of the Christian and a powerful motive to universal holiness. Want to hear it again? I know you do. Okay. The coming of the day of God urged by Peter as being a characteristic mark of a true Christian and a most powerful motive to universal holiness. He's coming back. I want to live to please God, not merely myself. Well, we must move. Uh, verse 13, we're resting in his promise. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And again, you BSF community Bible study folks, precept folks, um, heaven and earth are used twice here. It's a lot of fun to drill down in. I'll leave that to your own, but it's used. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be new. That's the point. It's a beautiful, simple little parallel, but there's a lot more there than we have time. Let me give you two lessons as we uh, continue, and then we're, we will commemorate the Lord's table. First one is you and I need a long, patient view of life. You and I need a long, patient view of life. Peter's instruction pertains to the timing or the apparent delay of Jesus' return. That's what happened in context. It's an easy extrapolation. 
Things aren't working out the way I want them to. Things aren't happening according to my schedule. All of us have this conundrum. You've got plans, dreams, purposes, hopes, and you know you want to get your kids on this track. You want to save a certain amount of money. You want to build a dream house. You want to go on two vacations a year. You want to do two missions trips a year. All these things are fine and good, and you've got the liberty and freedom to do them. And then one of your kids goes through a divorce. One of your kids gets cancer. One of your grandchildren has undiagnosed issues, and you, your heart breaks. You would die a thousand times for your grandson or granddaughter so that they didn't have to go through that pain. You would die in a second. You'd give them your liver, your kidney, your lungs, your head if it would help, right? My mother would often say, I would, with her eyes closed, if I giving you my right arm would help, I would do it. And she would have. And only a parent or a grandparent agonizes over their children that way. Life doesn't work out. Another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Life doesn't work out the way you want. Living in between is what he wants. If life was a trajectory that always went up, you nor I would care about God. We thank him and pat ourselves on the back and keep being successful in life. Because we're fallen creatures in a fallen context, bad things are going to affect us. How we respond, not the outcome, is what he's after. Listen to Percy Ainsworth, who I was only introduced to this week. God sent Elijah to the brook, and it dried up. It did not prove equal to the need of the prophet. It failed Percy writes, God knew it would. He made it fail. The brook dried up. This is an aspect of the divine providence that sorely perplexes our minds and tries our faith. God knows that there are heavenly whispers that men cannot hear until the drought of trouble and perhaps weariness has silenced the babbling brooks of joy. And he is not satisfied until we have learned to depend not on his gifts, but on him himself. That's gold. That's gold. He knew it was going to happen. It didn't catch him off guard that I was going to have this back issue. You were going to have cancer. Your mother or father was going to have dementia. It didn't catch him off guard that we lose loved ones. We need a long, patient view. Secondly, from verse 11, what sort of people ought we be? What sort of people ought we be? I was uh, appreciated, unsolicited, Jason referring to the handbook of prayer. I encourage you to take a look at it. This morning, day 20, um, I was reading through it, and the passage that jumped off and got me derailed was uh, his reference to 1 Peter 1.17 in the renewal. Since I call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially, May I conduct myself in fear during the time of my sojourn on earth. And of course, me being the bookish weirdo I am, I, wait, I got to go look at that in the original language. So I got to lose, you know, 20 minutes tracing it down. Um, and I'd written something in my Bible in 1 Peter 17 that I had forgotten, which is why I write it in my Bible. Um, if, God, if you call him father, then act like his son. That's righteous living. If you call him father, then act like his daughter. Because you're representative of that. Many of you know John Erickson Tata, dear friends of Cindy's and mine. And some of you know her. Uh, she's been in a wheelchair 51 years. She broke her neck at age 17, diving off a little pier in a, a lake in California. Um, 
Johnny has uh, got a global ministry that gives out uh, oh, north of half a million wheelchairs a year, ministers to people with profoundly disabled families and, and, and support systems. It goes on and on and on. It's an amazing ministry. Um, she's undergoing a second round of breast cancer. She had uh, radical treatments before it's come back. Uh, here's a woman that lives in chronic pain, even though she's a quad, and now she's got to go through radiation. Most, most quads die of respiratory issues. Their lungs eventually start to fail, and they can't deal with the pneumonia. Um, if you know Charles, Charles Krathammer, that's what eventually got him, was cancer and pneumonia. Uh, so Johnny is back in undergoing uh, radiation. I'm going to read you part of a personal letter she sent, but it's, some of it's been public now. And she's got a picture of herself in front of this giant machine, and it's a 3D conformal radiation machine. Some of you know what that is. She called it, she, she nicknamed it JL. She has to go have radiation every day. I think, for, I forget how many weeks, seven weeks now. I forget what it was. Um, why do I call it JL? Uh, she calls it her fiercest ally in the battle of cancer. Why do I call it JL? Remember the heroine of the book of Judges who ruthlessly drove a stake through Cicero's head. By the way, you got kids, teach them Judges. It's a great book. It's a great action book, man. Eglon and Ehud, Cicero, this is a great act. Your kids will love this book. Um, why, uh, says Sarah, nailing the Canaanite's head to the ground in order to deliver from the enemies. The story sounds awful, but not when applied to a machine that ruthlessly obliterates enemy cancer cells. Yep, JL is our friend, and she's got a pinpoint aim. Well, I'm into my second week of radiation. I'm still energetic, experiencing strength and stamina again. Your prayers at work. My radiologist described the trajectory of the x-rays are barely skimming my lungs, so I will not experience damage to them. That was the big concern because the respiratory, she already has issues, and if you damage the lungs, it accelerates her death. I'm far from completing the, the radiation regime. Please continue to pray. My energy will be bolstered. And please pray that God will quiet the pain I'm experiencing. I wake up at 4 a.m. The other day she wrote me, she's got the projection clock like I do. She goes 120, 2.20, 3.20, all night long in pain. I pray specifically for you and our wonderful pain pals. Pain and cancer are considerable trouble. But I keep reminding them of Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. Yes, God is oh so close to us as Ken and I feel close to you. So, bless, so God bless you, and thank you for praying for the salvation of the doctors and the staff whom we connect. Beth, a wonderful woman in the waiting room, told me she read the Johnny story tract over and over, and she wants to talk. We'll talk tomorrow when Ken and I go back and meet her and meet with our friend JL. Hydroplaning on your prayers. We are literally hovering above gut-wrenching hardships of pain and cancer. Believe me, God's using you to pour liquid gold, the gold of his grace on our hearts, and it's wonderful. What sort of people ought we be? Chronic pain and cancer and more concerned about the medical staff and the doctors and the people in the waiting room that they know Christ. I don't know how you can get there. I'm not saying we'll all be there tomorrow. 
But that's an encouragement to me. That's a conviction to me. That's a reminder to me. It's not about my time, my plan, my schedule. I, me, my, bigger, better, newer, more, the way life ought to be. And that's what's hard as we live in a Western culture where we have pretty much everything at our hand.